Cyber Synapse, the podcast that's creating connections through candid conversations about cyber issues. Sponsored by Agency, with your host, Kath Nibbs. Welcome to Cyber Synapse. This week, I'm joined by Eric Medina. He's a clinical psychologist from the US, and I'm going to allow Eric to tell us where he's from, um, because it's the one place that I cannot pronounce. Um, We all have our nemesis words. Um, So before I do that, Eric, um, do you want to kind of talk about um, who you are, what you do, and why you do what you do? Sure. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist. I do individual couples psychotherapy. I was actually trained in a Freudian, um, classical Freudian modality. Um, And I now consider myself phenomenological existential. And I spend my time doing individual and couples therapy as well as psychological testing. Okay. On children and adolescents. Okay. And can you tell us where you're from, seeing as I tried before and... I'm from the great state of Massachusetts. Okay. All right. Um, so I'm, I was just thinking, actually, just before we came on air, um, I think we met chatting on Twitter um, via um, uh, uh, one, of the ca- one of the accounts, actually, that's no longer there, called Therapy Tales. Yes, yeah. I remember that well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm not sure. I've actually got a picture behind me from um, Lewis Carroll kind of um okay. one of the one of the pictures that i got from because i absolutely fell in love with that uh, series over over twitter and kind of the conversations that came from that um yes. so obviously we we i'm i'm expanding uh the conversations that i'm having with people and one of the things is you're a parent as well so i thought what what we'd start with is would you like to go through some of the stuff that we've we've had a chat about about your your children and what's happening with the internet with their devices and where where you see us progressing as a uh yeah as a society really well uh sure um i've got an 11 and 9 year old daughter uh daughters that i have half time and when they're with me i try not to monitor their internet usage so much um i think my task has been to try to get them to feel as comfortable talking about their internet usage. And I'll ask about things that they've seen or, or, or done online. Mm-hmm. Um, they have social media accounts now and uh, they ask me, Oh, can I make it, can I make it public or private? And, oh, let's talk about that. Things of that sort. Um, in general, my task is to sort of let them do their thing and then use me as a resource if they encounter something confusing or off-putting or, or even traumatizing. Luckily, that hasn't happened. Yeah. So in, in terms of their, their introduction to the internet, it hasn't been as um, chaotic as some of the, the obviously, the, the clients I work with. Um, so I'm, I'm just, obviously, one of the things that people won't know that um, I had an intention to was kind of talk about where where we might be heading as a society and what you think might happen as your children grow up with with the devices with what we've got out there so uh, we i know we have possibly lots and lots and lots to talk about but at the same time we've got to try and limit it so sure. i just thought perhaps you could give us your your overview opinions as to what you think's going to be around the corner and what you think we need to be doing as parents as um as practitioners as well really Oh, sure. Um, well, one thing that, I, that I'm dealing with already, and I'm sure you're dealing with also, is the whole notion of cyber stalking and cyber bullying, especially mm-hmm. among teachers. And uh, I'm 
on a daily basis, really through Twitter, I'm learning about all sorts of ways in which teenagers and preteens even can harass each other anonymously online. Yeah. When I find that out, I immediately have a conversation with my kids about it. It's like, um, do you guys know how to make your, uh, your Instagram private? And is it private? Yes, it is. And your YouTube channel, you know, and so on. Um, we talk about, you know, that, that kind of thing. Luckily, their school also has a full curriculum about cyber stalking and cyber bullying and so on. Yeah. My guess is, it's hard to predict the future, but I, I see us becoming more and more connected through social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's what my 11-year-old who um, connects with friends through text messaging and, um, and, and apps all the time. And, um, and that's really become uh, a way of uh, exchanging information and connecting socially. Yeah. Well, I mean, hence, hence the word social media. And we, we've got all of uh, what I'm going to call a bit of the um, panic that's occurring at the moment with the, you know, social media is bad for mental health. And actually, um, I'm, I'm going to say I'm, I'm not necessarily always seeing that because I see the social side of it. And where children would tell each other things in the playground, they now do that across these devices and across the apps. So... Um, obviously, we we do have the downside of it in the in in ideas of um, the stalking and cyberbullying. And um, what I was going to say is, um, we don't in this country. We, the stalking isn't always seen as um, as prevalent as the cyberbullying. And the issue that I think we've got in this country is the word cyberbullying itself. So um, I'm I'm on a bit of a campaign at the minute um, uh, to let people know that I've uh, redefined a lot of cyberbullying with. Uh, another two authors who came on board and we kind of rejigged what I said cyberbullying was because actually it covers cyberstalking, cyber harassment, trolling. And and we've got so many different names for what could be one issue that I've actually referred to it as a phenomena rather than a specific. So I've, I've, I've used phenomenology actually um, when I was doing my case studies to to have a look at the client's experiences, the counsellor's experiences, and came up with this well it is a phenomena it is not a singular event and obviously it's it's going to get more and more complex as more apps develop so I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of the conversations that you have with your girls how how do they how do they have those conversations because I'm thinking about in this country we we certainly don't go into schools and talk to children about cyber stalking Okay. Well, um, in uh, as part of their health curriculum, uh, both girls receive uh, actually since the third grade. So by the time before they were eight or so, yeah. um, they all got lectures and discussions about cyber stalking, cyber bullying, um, peer pressure online, and all those things. Um, nowadays, they, they'll typically initiate the conversation with me, partly because I'm really busy. But uh, at the breakfast table or the dinner table, they'll bring up something that they saw online or um, a new app. One thing of interest to me are those, um, and I don't think it's just one app, there's a, there's a number of them, that allow individuals to tell others what they really think and feel about them anonymously. Yeah. And I think it was intended as a way for people to give compliments anonymously, um, if, if we are to believe the, the founders. Um, but it, it can, as you can imagine, it can become a way of, um, of hurling insults, um, uh, stalking people, pressuring them, or humiliating even. Yes. So that's something that they, they shared with me. And so I did my research um, in that sense. I find more and more um, they're more in touch with what's happening than I am. Um, yeah. 
yeah, I don't think you're the first parent to be on this this uh, well, not even on this podcast in my, in my in my world of talking to parents and professionals. Yeah, I I think well, I think I wonder actually. I'm going to change that to I wonder if one of the issues is is as parents we're um, frightened maybe of this this technology and you know and when the children are saying that they know more than us, actually, how do we then have conversations with them on a topic when we're not so sure of? Yes, and I think that's only going to get um, worse for me as I get older and as they mm-hmm. get older. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel very lucky in that I'm online, um, that I know what Twitter is, I know what Facebook is. Uh, I just got on Facebook last year. Um, but I'm familiar enough with social media that I'm not intimidated by it. Um, yeah. But um, I'm certainly concerned by what they're learning and how they're learning it at, and at what rate, certainly. Yeah. What What kind of things do you think that children are, are learning in terms of... Um, so I'm going to tap into your, your clinical psychologist side now. What, what do you think that children are actually learning um, in terms of social skills, development, you know, that kind of thing? Where do you think we're going as a society? Oh, that was a big one, wasn't it? <laughs> well, as a society, I'm, I'm optimistic. And I hope that um, with this new technology, we'll be able to use it at, uh, constructively as a way to teach social skills, maybe to, mm-hmm. to kids who are a little more awkward and shy, um, maybe even to adults who have trouble socializing. Um, and that's the other thing I've noticed on Twitter, uh, which is just sort of taking it away from the kid realm a little bit, is the number of adults who connect meaningfully, um, romantically, and many other ways online, who would not have done mm. so in person. Yeah. Yes, such, such as the, the dating realm. So the idea of, you know, particularly in this country, the, the, the wages that um, parents are under at the moment means it's very difficult for mums to stay at home. So quite often they go out to work, etc, etc. There's no time for anybody to actually sit and date anymore and go out with friends. And so I'm, I'm kind of just thinking, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent here, Eric. So bear with me. Bye. That there's, um, we've got the dating app, so actually that's what we're talking about, is that's where people do make connections. But also, I wonder what you're seeing in your couples counselling uh, and when you're working with couples around social media and, okay, so I'm going to bring up the hot topic over here, um, the, the likes of other people's accounts and the, the fact that somebody's in, uh, I don't know, said something on Instagram to somebody else and it, it turns into, you know, that's the hot argument of this week and it's all about and related to social media. Yes, um, absolutely. Very hot topic oh. over here. Um, and I'm speaking broadly about social media in general, but with specific reference to Twitter, which I think is special in this regard. I can say more about why I think Twitter is special. Hmm. Um, key aspect couples having discussions in my office about well what's your social media account how come i don't know who you are on facebook or twitter or this other um, social media network uh, do you share passwords do you follow one another and if so what um how do you talk about things that you see your partner posting or retweeting or liking that may be a little off-putting to you and what kind of conversation do you have that uh, about that and do you have that conversation online or off? All sorts of issues around privacy, trust, certainly, and intimacy really get, um, yeah. they get negotiated in my office, but they also get negotiated online in a really interesting way. Um, yes, I, I sometimes consider that I must be um, a slight voyeur of what happens on social media, A, because of the, the kind of platforms that I use, but I, I do sit watching and sometimes I just think, how, how interesting that actually that's a conversation that I might have had with somebody in private 
And yet mm -hmm. here we are, public domain, and not only are you talking maybe couples, but you're talking friends and they're having a conversation and almost forgetting that everybody else can see it. Yes, and um, with specific regard to couples, it's um, the public nature of social media and the, and the fact that spats haven't happened online and, and so on and uh, mm. romance happens sometimes very openly before our eyes online has been a wonderful way to talk about boundaries. And online yeah. has introduced a whole new set of boundaries for us to think about. Yeah. So do you, do you think it's making relationships um, more complicated at all? Or how do, how do you I think? I think so. I think so. Um, at the same time, I have, to, I have to think that some relationships would never have happened had it not been for Twitter, for example, mm. which um, allows a certain amount of... Um, contact between people that doesn't have to do with bodies or appearances and so on you can be very frank on twitter you can uh, or you can be completely deceptive um you can take on a persona um there are lots of ways to use twitter and i've seen many many good friends of mine actually get to know each other and meet on twitter yeah yeah uh yeah i was just thinking then um that i've seen quite a few posts on linkedin as well actually and uh, they generally come from um women getting um let's say rather cross that um it's it's being used as a dating site so you you get the the uh invitation to connect with a, uh, what's supposedly a professional um uh, app and what does happen is then somebody might receive uh quite a sexual uh message it might be it might be a complimentary one but i have seen um the other side which is where um, screenshots are used and, and people then say, oh, I can't believe this has been sent to me. And, and, and I'm, I'm quite curious about the, the actual interactions that happen, A, in the first place from one person to another in, in the guise of uh, romance, but then also the shaming experience of, I can't believe this has been sent to me, uh, which I, I haven't actually seen on Twitter. What I, what I do see on Twitter is rather interesting at times. And I do, I do watch people bickering, arguing, um, I've seen stalking, I've seen harassment, I've seen bullying, I've seen, and it, it all happens within these domains, but I think the apps work very differently as well. So I was just thinking about how, how you'd said people meeting and not meeting, and, and I'm just thinking about LinkedIn and what, what I've actually witnessed from people. Yes, um, you, know, you mentioned a couple of things that are interesting. Um, when I do individual work, uh, and also when I speak with friends, to, to say that women and men have different uses and experiences of social media is an understatement. Um, mm -hmm. that, that's one thing I see in a very big way, a huge gender difference. Um, I think women, in, in my experience, uh, more, more socially but also clinically, are more likely to receive unsolicited communications yeah. and unsolicited graphic communications, um, typically from men. And men don't typically receive those. Um, and then uh, men and women, I think, are both trying to find their way on Twitter. Um, mm -hmm. There's certainly some malevolent people uh, who know what they're doing and know that they're doing something um, that's not likely to be taken well. However, uh, clinically, I'm also aware of a number of men who um, cannot really socialize well in person, have found social media to be wonderful, and have made a number of very basic mistakes. And, and they've learned the hard way on social media, as, as we've all learned. Yeah. But um, make mistakes about how to introduce yourself, um, how to join a conversation, um, what is appropriate to say in private as opposed to on a public timeline. Uh, mm -hmm. On Facebook, 
people's Twitter. Also, um, Snapchat is becoming used a lot more. Yeah. Yeah, and in here in the UK, it's um, Instagram and Snapchat are, are for younger people. They're probably the most popular platforms, along along with actually the the anonymous ones. It tends to be, I think, us old hats that use stuff like LinkedIn and Facebook. But yes. it doesn't mean, yeah, it doesn't mean that um, children and young people are not using those platforms. So um, just in case people are listening, thinking, right, I need to be on this. Actually, all all apps are seemingly used by the children that I work with and we talk about. Mm -hmm. But they again, it's almost like a different tool. So Instagram might be used for a certain kind of um, persona, so pictures of, uh, I don't know, for, for example, food or the gym, which tends to be the most popular thing on Instagram, I think it is, or cats. And then um, kind of LinkedIn might be about articles and, and so on. Yes. Connecting a, a slightly more academic level and professional and, and Twitter, there, there do seem to be um, quite a lot of different ways of using it. So I work a lot with um, some of the victims from the Manchester arena bombing uh, here and the way that they use Twitter has actually changed, um, which has been quite interesting from a clinical point of view. But also it's interesting to know that this other thread of Twitter exists which I wasn't privy to because uh, I had no intention of reading about it. And obviously it was brought to uh, my attention through clinical practice. So I'm, I'm wondering what, what it is that you actually hear as a narrative, you know, from, from the client's perspectives about where, where technology sits with them in, in their lives, where it is in, in the therapy room. So a phrase I use when I'm teaching is usually you can't make your room cyberproof anymore. It's just not possible. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, a saying that I find myself using from time to time comes from um, growing up as a teenager uh, in New Jersey where car theft was a regular thing. Um, back then we said, if somebody really wants to break into your car, there's no alarm or lock system that's going to stop them. They're, they're going to, if they're determined not they're going to break into your car. Mm -hmm. What I find myself saying to, to clients now is, uh, look, if, if somebody really wants to harass you and target you, that there are there are things you can do to stay safe and minimize the risk. But once someone, um, and I've had a couple of situations where stalkers have been very persistent and, um, and law enforcement, you know, sometimes gets involved. Um, and, and also with friends of mine on Twitter who, um, you know, um, get stalked by Sunday, they'll say, help, this is happening, what do I do? Um, and they're and they're very persistent, and uh, and I think one thing that I would like to see. I don't, I don't know how the situation is in your country, but over here, the law enforcement is just starting to understand that um, cyber harassment is a real thing. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it's uh, and it should be actionable under the law. And unfortunately, our laws haven't caught up to that reality yet. That this is a whole new way of harassing people. Yeah, I I think we're pretty much uh, the same as that. I, I I know that people are starting to have a look at it, but. It's, it's obviously understanding the psychology behind it and it takes obviously people like us to do the research to, to bring the evidence for it then to change uh, at policy level, for it then to be implemented and then happens to become the law enforcement. And, and it, it seems to take a long time. Um, and for me, the way that um, social media and, and the internet works is it's a lot, lot faster than that. So we need to basically pull, pull our bootstraps up and get moving um, in terms of how we need to address this. Um, yeah. I was going to say something else then and it's totally gone. So I'll just have to think on the fly now as uh, what I was going to ask. Oh, that was it. Um, 
So actually, in terms of the effects of stalking, what, what do you actually see in your... Um, so this is um, to kind of highlight why stalking, why cyber harassment, why cyber bullying is um, such a big influence. And I'm aware that um, in some of my research, I've, I refer to Dana Boyd. Um, so she's over in America and, and it is one of the... Um, Sherry Bauman as well. So I think, okay. um, so that their um, kind of counsellors doing research over in the United States around cyberbullying. And um, we have slightly different ways of doing it here. So I think what we are trying to do is address the problem. But I think there's, there's, there's too many chiefs and not enough Indians in, in, in terms of we, we haven't got a focused um, viewpoint of it. And the other issue we've got, particularly in this country, is when we talk about this, this um, kind of crime, we have the label cybercrime. And then we have the problem of defining it because cyberbullying is slightly different to cyber stalking and cyber harassment and e-harassment. And we could have 200 labels for exactly the same kind of behavior and it could overlap. And I think that's one of the differences, um, which is why I think I'm quite hopeful for the kind of researchers that, that do phenomenology. Because actually yeah. it's when you get to the real experience and that, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing because it's the real experience that then helps us come up with the definitions that are a bit more um, maybe oper operational, if that makes sense. So I know that was quite an academic term for people. Um, and I, I often get my hands slapped when I start talking about operationalization. Um, so actually, what, what we need are terms that we can understand and we can measure. Yes, uh, you mentioned phenomenology, which is um, one of my favorite hobbies. Um, and I think what, what's nice about phenomenology, um, and I, I can say a little bit about how I came to be phenomenological away from identif identifying myself as um, analytic. Um, what I love about phenomenology clinically is that it really takes subjective experience um, seriously. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, some, a, a client comes in and says, I felt this way and so on. Um, phenomenology invites us to, to look at the textures of that and to really study and explore how someone is experiencing you or me or um, or Twitter or Facebook or someone online yeah. in a really interesting way. And what's interesting about Twitter is, uh, and this is something that I've learned from my own use of Twitter in terms of the phenomenology of Twitter, I discovered about one year into Twitter that I had some very close um, internet relationships with people whose gender I did not know. And it was the first yeah. time in my life that I had realized, oh, wait a minute, I usually know somebody's gender, but in this case, I didn't. Some people keep it purposefully vague, and in some cases, it just never came up. Um, but uh, there's something, uh, I'm sure there's some philosophical hay to be made of this as well, but mm. uh, Twitter allows a certain level of contact such, so much so that gender even falls out of the equation. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was, oh, actually, I had that same experience. And I have a funny feeling that when I say that we kind of started chatting around uh, therapy tales, that might have been one of the accounts that uh, was gender neutral in, insofar as I could not work out, which made it even more exciting to actually work, um, uh, work with it, try again, to, to read around it. And, and there was almost an investigation. My curiosity was, I wonder if <laughs> I, I've had that very same curiosity, yeah. and, uh, and it, it was sort of my introduction to um, to gender. In, in a, well, being a dad to two girls was another introduction to gender. Mm -hmm. um, but online, it was for me that that burning curiosity. I need to know this person's gender, and then someone else that I shared this dilemma with saying, "Why? 
Well, because I would relate to them completely differently if they were this gender as opposed to that gender. And then that gave me pause to look at, wow, we, yeah. th this is how gender plays a role. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think what Twitter really did nicely for me is it allowed me to suspend uh, a good phenomenological term, uh, suspension, um, suspend gender and actually look at it and see how it shaped my interactions with people online. Yeah. And it helped me understand my interactions with people in, uh, quote unquote, in real life in a whole new way. Yeah. So Twitter's been very educational for me that way. Yeah, I've, I've found that with um, avatars as well. So when mm -hmm. you see an avatar, um, they're, they're, for me, there's a projection of, does it look like the person? Have they chosen an avatar to look opposite or similar? Or, and and you, you do spend a lot of time making curious guesses and assumptions. And, and usually it's the narrative that starts to play out that you might, you might get a little bit of a clue. And it's, I find it really interesting, which is why um, quite often the language interests me, how people um, also shorten um, so somebody might put should SHD and then and mm -hmm. I, sometimes I'm like, I'm not so sure what, what these people are trying to communicate, but actually they're shortening uh, usually verbs, adjectives. It depends on what it is. Um, and then the people that write to be, and they will write the, the number two and the letter B. And, and I think, okay, what, what emphasis are you trying to, because we can't do italics. We can't do bold. So the two options we've got are either shorten letters and words or write in shouty capitals. Uh, yeah. And that's that's really interesting how how we communicate and and obviously now we've got the emoticons, yes, which have added another layer. So that um, there's a psychologist that I follow on on Twitter who's just done a, a TED talk on emoticons and and that's really interesting. Hopefully, I might get to speak to her as well. So, uh, with regard to emoticons, my children are completely my source um, in terms of what they are, what they mean because I've noticed there's a whole level of meaning to emoticons, um, fruits, vegetables, um, smiley faces. Mm -hmm. um, my 11 year old will say to me, dad, that's, that's not what that means. Oh, can you tell me what that means? Oh, yes, I mean, oh, okay, good to know. Yeah. Apparently emoticons are very common among their age group, middle school, um, yeah, tweens. Yeah, I actually, um, it was only today that I had a client showing them on the poop emoji because the mum had no idea what this poop. And then it was quite funny how she said, actually, I've seen them at the seaside towns as plush little, um, and I said, yeah, we've taken yeah, social media into the real world and you can now buy a poop emoticon cushion. I, <laughs> yes, well, we have one, it's a conversation piece. Um, this is not a plug for a movie, but we, I took my girls to go see the emoji movie. And, and there's a hilarious scene in it, I'm not giving away the movie, where um, several poop emojis are lined up and they're, they're singing together, we're number two, we're number two. <laughs> it's a yes. source of endless humor for my, my girls and me. So we still yeah. joke about it. And, and the child within. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, what was I gonna? What was I gonna ask? It's still, it's still evaded me. Um, this is why I need to write things down, Eric. Um, my my abilities as a podcast host are uh, few and far between. But this is what I'm really enjoying about doing. I, it. I sympathise deeply. Um, <laughs> I do remember. I forget. Uh, I think back when we were talking about Snapchat, I have an anecdote to share um, to make this really. We're talking about adults and kids. I'll make this transgenerational now. Um, the way I found out about Snapchat was through my parents who do a lot of traveling around the world. Uh -huh. and, uh, like It's not uncommon for me to, to uh, get a text message from them from Serbia or from 
you know, uh, Moscow. I'm like, whoa, where are you now? They're always traveling around the world. And apparently the way they communicate with their friends is through Snapchat. They take a video of some place that they've been to and they send um, you know, some commentary with it. And, um, and I remember, I'll never forget my mom saying to me, oh, do you know about Snapchat? I'm like, yeah, mom. I'm like, my parents are close to 80 years old. Yeah, mom. Um, what about Snapchat? Oh, yes, your father and I are on Snapchat. You should join us. I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> Interesting. It, yeah. Sandwich so my parents introduced yeah. Snapchat. <laughs> Sandwiched between the two generations. Uh, actually, you have reminded me on Snapchat. This is another thing I've actually seen in terms of um, behavior that I was really taken aback by, actually. And it was two, I believe they're psychologists over in the US on mm -hmm. Snapchat. And what they did was they hacked into each other's account. Oh, my. And uh, I, I followed this. I, I spent... I don't know, it was about two months, I think it was. And there would be this, um, the, the moment would start with um, the story. So the first psychologist might say, so, so-and-so's, and they were naming each other, so-and-so's hacked into my account. And then halfway through her story would be the hacked pictures that would come in. So she would then hack the other one. And I just thought, how bizarre. How bizarre that, that they haven't changed their passwords was the thing that actually went. And that was, that was what really confused me. Um, and that was, it kind of now brings me back full circle because I have just remembered what, um, what I was going to ask you. So in terms of young people and couples in the room, you mentioned, you know, do they share passwords? Do they talk about what they're doing on the internet? Do you ever have the conversations about the reading each other's text messages, sneaking on their phones? Okay. So obviously it's not just oh. me in this practice here. So how, how do you address that when you're with clients in the room? Is, I mean, because that is what we're talking, boundaries again, isn't it? It is. Um, and the way it comes up clinically usually is when there's a change in people's um, smartphone usage. Um, the smartphone that never had a passcode before suddenly gets a passcode. Or the smartphone that was always um, hidden away and you know, passcode protected is suddenly left out in the open. Um, do you set your um, notifications to allow um, the people who text you to to show up or not? Um, yes, that, that starts a lot of conversations about privacy and trust. Yeah, yeah, I've had a, I've had a lot of conversations, whether I'm working with individuals, um, children, or in fact, it is it's a really interesting conversation. I find that um, it becomes almost a blase. Do I say this to my therapist and see what she says? Um, so there's almost something about, so I checked his phone, but you know, that was because, and then, then comes the justification, um, or the fact is they've said, well, you know, it was, it was laying face down and I just couldn't help it. So that there's something about, it, it's really interesting, the narrative that sits around this kind of behavior. And I've, I've kind of said, you know, well, that, that's almost like somebody's mail through the letterbox. You know, it's, 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 it's an illegal offense to open somebody else's mail. So why, why, why is it okay to open somebody else's phone? And, and, you know, and it's just, it's really interesting. This is an interesting conversation. It reminds me of an interesting conversation that I've had several times from at least two different angles, um, both with individuals, um, couples, and with parents of, of, of kids that I've tested um, uh, psychologically. And it, and it goes something like this. Um, uh, a spouse is concerned about what their partner may be doing online and wants to know. 
Mm -hmm. A parent is concerned about their child's internet usage and wants more information. Yeah. So um, if, if we're lucky, we have a conversation before they do something that is you know, pretty intrusive or, or, or may violate a boundary uh, with regard to you know, privacy. Uh, usually a spouse is contemplating looking at somebody else's email or looking at their spouse's email or looking at their text messages or, or requesting that they'd be allowed to, you know, that they share passwords for email or they share, you know, um, um, their, their Twitter with each other if, if they don't already. And, um, and more than once I've had the, the opportunity to ask someone, okay, you want to know, why do you want to know? What are you hoping to find? And what do you plan to do with the information once you find it? Yeah. I find these are things that most people don't give a lot of thought to, especially in the heat of the moment when jealousy or, or fear um, is guiding, you know, the, the wish to mm -hmm. intrude on someone else's life, whether it's a spouse or a child. Yeah. And uh, we've had a, lot, a number of very interesting conversations about um, why someone would break that boundary yeah. or in some cases why someone doesn't even recognize that there's a boundary to be broken. Yeah, I, I'm uh, actually. I, when just before we started, I was actually saying to you, wasn't I, that when when my children were little, and obviously they're they're um, in their twenties now, that mm. when they were little, we had a conversation about the internet was first first kind of becoming something that children had access to. Um, they had com the the computer was downstairs, and what we agreed is when they were going to go on the computer, and I wasn't going to be there, so that might be in the kitchen, or they'd um, they'd got to a stage where the age difference was becoming. Um, as it normally does with siblings, that one where one wants their space and the other one doesn't, and they both want to do the different things on the same item. And so it, it got to a stage where when they had their own computers, um, I had an agreement and they had a program that would monitor other people's communication with them. Um, and there were certain words, buzzwords. It turned out that the games that they were playing on, which funnily enough are advertised in a lot of the secondary schools in this country, so 11 to 16, um, where they can play, so the, the, they're what are called MMORPGs, um, which is a lovely acronym, but it means an online playing game that can be played with anybody around the world. Essentially. Oh. Yeah. So now pretty much what Xbox does and PS4. and So this was the beginning of um, children being able to be at high risk as far as I was concerned. And I was getting, you know, 100, 200 emails a day because other users of the game were effing and jeffing and it would send me an email to say, somebody has said this to your child. Somebody said this to your child. Some... And in the end, I sat and I said, okay, this has got beyond a joke because I can't have my inbox like this. So what we did is we talked about the words that do get used, the fact that people do swear, the fact that people will ask them questions. So I learned a lot of the acronyms. Uh, oh, cool, Bennett, it's going back a long time now. Um, and I watched a lot of the conversations that happened on um, MSN Messing when that first came out. So. Yes, that was that was where I first had my introduction to how children use the internet compared to adults, and it was a conversation that we had with the children. But then comes that stage when adolescence begins, and we're we're discussing kind of puberty, adolescence, changes, growing up, and all of the privacy. And that's actually when we had the conversation, and they had their own accounts, and I didn't monitor it. We carried on the conversations. Um, I'm very lucky that both of my children um, uh, uh, t tend to show me far too much. It's, it, it's, it's continued. So now what they say is, have you seen that this is happening on the internet? And do you know that this? So I'm constantly kept updated, but actually I don't need to know anymore. Um, and there's a part of me that doesn't want to know. 
So it's really interesting how the conversations can actually mm. develop into more knowledge for the parent, but then also the recognition that there comes a time to have the privacy. Um, yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and again, I, I tend to be on the less intrusive side of, um, of cautious. So I, I give, I, I'm currently giving my kids a lot of uh, room to do things online. Um, other parents are a lot more strict. They check browser history regularly. Um, I do ask my kids what they're watching online and so on. Um, mm. I look forward to the kinds of conversations that you're having with your kids now uh, about, in fact, I'm going to guess, check with me in a few years, but I'm going to guess that I would rather they overshare than withhold. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. That's all I can tell you, Eric, is it's very interesting. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, the thing for me is, is listening to the way that, that you're um, both a, a practitioner and a parent, there's a lot about knowledge of trust is built with a, a kind of a two way street. And, and that's one of the things. So we do get a little bit of a panicky kind of um, we, we need to check the browser history. And I will say to parents, they'll just do it in private. They will do it this way. Well, I'll get this and I'll say, and children know how to get around that. You know, when, when schools first put the computers in um, and they, they put all of these locks and keys and things and, and children couldn't do that, there were children in the playground selling the codes to get around the, the firewalls and to, because children are innovative. And also, this is almost, as we were saying earlier, their realm. They know more than us. Yes, and, uh, and the internet affords the ability to satisfy a lot of curiosities instantaneously. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think that's going to have an effect on how we do our jobs in, in a few years? So this is kind of me just kind of um, titillating for what, I, what I'm kind of writing about at the moment. But do you think this is going to have an effect on how we're able to actually be practitioners with uh, our clients in the future? It certainly is. Um, I think what, what used to be called telepsychiatry or telepsychology is, is huge now. Um, over here in the U.S., we're looking, a lot of us are looking for HIPAA-compliant ways to have video conferences. Mm -hmm. um, the, the technology exists, but it's still not perfected. Um, there's a lot of glitches. I've tried a couple of platforms out, and they don't really allow for as real-time a conversation as, uh, as other less secure platforms. Yeah. Um, but while you were talking about how technology changes our lives as practitioners, I immediately bounced off to my other job, which is as a teacher. And teaching my very first, uh, I teach in college, and, I, and this semester I'm teaching my first online class. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a sense in which um, the online platform could replace the classroom. And in fact, already has replaced the classroom for a number of different people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And a hot topic of conversation at conferences and meetings is, well, will we be replaced by AI? Um, there are already bots out there who know how to ask questions. Could CBT be delivered online in a manualized format? Yeah. Yes, that is become, yeah, that is definitely becoming a hot topic. Actually, that might be uh, uh, another another opportunity for us to come back and have a conversation about that as, as um, practitioners. I'm aware that there's one other lady who um, is kind of thinking around this topic um, here. Um, and, and luckily, I do know her, so I can kind of have a conversation with her. But I, I think that there is something about what jobs will AI take over. Um, mm -hmm. And this was, that, this was that conversation I was saying earlier. So most people are talk, beginning to talk about AI. And I'm saying to everybody, no, we need to be thinking of super AI because there's a lot more stuff coming that, that yeah, yeah. 
so I think who is it Tim Urban who writes Wait But Why has, has talked about how human progress works and we're in kind of the upward curve of an S at the moment. We're, we're about to shoot up again. And, yeah. and that is exciting, but it also terrifies me. Absolutely. <laughs> you put the words right out of my mouth. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, could therapy ever be replaced by technology, by AI or so on, I would have said absolutely not. This is the most human and the most intimate of encounters. Um, the spontaneity um, for, for those of us who are fans of Winnicott, the play, um, yeah. you know, between patient and therapist. Um, uh, how how could you possibly replicate that with a machine? Again, ten years ago, I was very comfortable saying that. I'm not as comfortable saying that anymore. I've seen AI, and it's mm -hmm. uh, it's not. Um, oh, I almost I almost called her Alexa, but her name was she was from Princeton, Eliza. Um, oh, back in the day, um, you, you would type in a question and Eliza would respond and eventually, you know, run into some repetitive loops. But um, Eliza is a lot more sophisticated now than she was 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. You We've know. definitely moved on from Hal, haven't we? In, uh... We have, or maybe we're moving closer to Hal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. I am uh, aware of the time. So we, we generally go for about 25 minutes. Again, I think I've shot over that. So it's probably not too much this time, I think. Okay. Um, I need, what I really need is a little timer that pops up on the screen. You'd think being a tech person, I could set that up. But I always forget because I get involved in the conversations and then I kind of look at the time and think, what time did I start? So what I'm going to do is, is thank you ever so much for your time, Eric. And obviously, uh, I'll put a little bit about you into the show notes. Um, so I'll do that in whatever way you want. And obviously, your Twitter handle that we're going to talk about. And um, obviously, if people want to contact you, they can either email me or contact you by any means that you give me. Um, and, and for now, I'm going to thank you very much for your time. Well, I'll thank you for this opportunity. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope we can do it again. Definitely. Okay. All right.